Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this interview that's coming up with John Russo. Um, just want to let you know that I'm going to be going to Monster Bash June 24th through the 26th. So I'm going to be leaving in a couple of days to go up to Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to have some fun. Get to meet Patrick Wayne again. I'm Caroline Monroe again, and uh, finally get to meet Wesley Yore and Kathy Coleman, who I interviewed earlier. I'll get to meet them in person and take that raft ride with them, and I get to re-meet Beverly Washburn. Oh, she's a joy. <clears throat> um, just hope everybody has a chance to get there. If not, at least listen to the interviews and other stuff so you have a, a sense of what it's like to have been there. Also, um, we're going to be listening to the promo for Monster Bash one last time because it's going to be coming up in just, like I said, a couple days. And uh, hope you guys enjoy the episode with John Russo. Thanks. The greatest classic monster conference ever, Monster Bash, is happening June 24th, 25th, and 26th at the Marriott Pittsburgh North, nestled in the beautiful green hills north of the city. Vendors of classic monster merchandise will be featured with over a hundred tables of fantastic collectibles. Find the stuff your mom threw out years ago. Guests of honor at Monster Bash that you can meet and get autographs from include Hammer's Caroline Monroe, the son of John Wayne, actor Patrick Wayne, the cast from the 1970s TV show Land of the Lost, Wesley Ewer, Kathy Cloman, and even a Sleestack. Plus, Beverly Washburn from Spider Baby, One Step Beyond, and Old Yeller. Pittsburgh special effects wizard, actor, and director Tom Savini. Jeremy Ambler from TV's The Walking Dead. John Russo from the original Night of the Living Dead. And TV horror host Son of Ghoul, Drac, and Countess Corita, Mr. Lobo, and more. Over 1,000 fans of classic monster movies, just like you, will call Monster Bash home this June. A film fest, question and answer sessions with the stars, wall-to-wall vendors, and all the classic monster excitement you can take. Go to monsterbash.us now for details. That's monsterbash.us. And join fans from across the country. It's the Monster Bash. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm joined by legendary writer, director, producer, actor, and educator, John A. Russo. How are you doing today, Mr. Russo? Very good. Thanks, Steve. I'm so happy you're able to take time out of your day to allow me to interview you because there's a few of your movies that I've really enjoyed. And I think most of our listeners have enjoyed growing up with watching all throughout their life. But you're more than just those couple of movies. You, you're you a writer of over 20 different books. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's probably close to 40 by now. Yeah, I have the three movie-making books, and I have uh, uh, the complete Night of the Living Dead film book, which is really a, a movie-maker's book as well as a fan book. And then I have 30-some uh, action suspense uh, terror novels, including four or five uh, that deal with zombies in different ways. And I was going to say, one of your books, The Making Movies, The Inside Guide to Independent Movie Production, uh, didn't it affect a certain direction? Director to help them out with their 
work? Um, Quentin Tarantino? Guess, well, Quentin Tarantino, uh, I met him at the Land of the Dead premiere, and uh, George Romero introduced me to him. There was a big crowd in the uh, in the reception area, and he said, you're the guy that wrote the books. And I said, which books? Because I didn't know if he, what he was referring to, the novels or what. He said, the movie-making books. And so later we were having a drink at the bar, and uh, he said that he he said that he had seen. Uh, well, he said I I made a movie that I didn't complete, and then I read your books and took notes and made charts, and that's what guided me through my first complete movie. I think that may have may have been uh, uh, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, but I don't really know. Yeah, I think Reservoir uh, Dogs was his first one. Yeah, so that's probably the one, and then uh, he did uh, use Lawrence Tierney in the cast, and we had brought Tierney out of retirement to do uh, to be in uh, Midnight, and he did a great job. And we were, you know, we remained friends till till he died. And uh, so I assume that Quentin probably saw Midnight. Because he watched everything. He was a clerk in a video store and a total movie nut like all of us. And that, that's it. So I use that blurb a lot. It's a good blurb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say you can't get, you can't get a better um, endorsement for a book than that. You know, because there, there's so many people yeah. that look yeah. at him as a legendary director. And yet he got he wouldn't have completed that first book without you helping guide the way, so to speak. Well, the thing is. You know, I was a teacher, English English teacher, science teacher, and I have a degree in English education with a minor in physical science. So um, a lot of filmmakers um, know how to make movies, but they don't know how to teach, and they're awkward at it and not real successful at it, and, and some can teach, but and don't have movie making credit so I have both so and I make it accessible because you know uh, starting with Night of the Living Dead we we uh, put together the budget and made the movie our way without any studio influence at all just made the best movie that we could and and uh, raised the money from friends family and local investors and not a whole lot of money so this is ready made to inspire other people trying to launch their careers to show them how we did it, and then they can maybe do it the same way, which Sam Raimi did and Spike Lee did the, the same way. And so a lot of them, uh, you know, give give me credit for, for showing them the way. And that includes, a, there were so many, lots of people influenced by Night of the Living Dead, not only the the concept, but the, the, the style of production and, and how you, you, could, you could take... Uh, a, a very low budget and make something pretty good and something that would launch a career. And that includes Blood Simple and, you know, the Cone Brothers and Sam Raimi, Toby Hooper. Uh, and the Cone Brothers kind of pissed me off because when I was writing that book, they wouldn't give me an interview and they probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for us. So, <laughs> I mean, and Spike Lee was the same way, but I did get an interview from his producer, Monty Ross, and I thought, well, well, you know, we were struggling in this, doing this uh, same kind of thing you're trying to do. And then Lizzie Borden, who did give me an interview, she said Spike Lee has an ego that, you know, a head so big it doesn't fit through a normal-sized doorway. So that that was back then. I don't, I don't, I don't know what he's like now. But Sam Raimi uh, and... and uh, Rob Tappert, Bruce Campbell, that whole gang wanted to do comedies. 
and until they saw Night of the Living Dead and they learned how we had put it together and they did it the same. They said, well, let's do some kind of a, a zombie movie and that resulted in the evil dead. And I liked it. I thought, and I said, uh, this guy has a lot of talent and he's probably going to go places, meaning Sam. But that, the other thing about them, they stuck together. You know, they didn't throw Bruce Campbell under the bus or whatever. Those guys remained friends and did projects together and, and kept going. Yeah, and by the way, they're, they're Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi. They are really good stand-up comics. I saw them you know, at a horror convention in L.A. doing kind of a stand-up routine. It was hilarious. So <laughs> I forget what they were talking about, but it was, it was an eye-opener. I was going to say, I didn't know they did stand-up comedy until you said that. So it's, it's... Well, I don't know if they do it regularly, but that this particular occasion, they really did it. And wh- whether it was all ad-lib or whether they don't be, I, I don't know. But it was really good. And Toby, uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, invited me to his place in Beverly Hills, and he wanted to work with me on whatever it turned out to be. And uh, he he said that he... He had made a movie. He said, coincidentally, he said, when you guys, you and George Romero and Russ Steiner were at WRS Motion Picture Lab in Pittsburgh uh, to looking at some of your footage for probably uh, The Affair, or There's Always a No, I Play with the Angel, in our second movie together. He said he was sitting there watching it with us, but never introduced himself. And he had been doing, having his lab work done there for uh, a movie that was like a, he said it was too 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 uh, esoteric, too too artsy fartsy to go anyplace, and I forget the name of it if I ever knew it. But he said he went home for a Christmas vacation in in Texas, and he was in a shopping center buying last minute gifts for Christmas, and and the crowds were so thick that he could barely move. And he walked past a place where there were a lot of chainsaws hanging on pegboards. And he thought to himself, if I had one of those chainsaws, I could cut my way through this crowd. And that was the start of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So uh, anyway, Toby was a really good director and very smart. And he showed me some of of his student films on that uh, occasion. And I thought, I said, well, you can clearly see that this, whoever made these student films has has a hell of a lot of talent, mm-hmm. and he did. So um, in 1990, Russ Strider and I were at the Horror Hall of Fame, which was on a soundstage at Universal, a really first-class event. It was the it was the um, Oscars for, for horror films, and it was first-class all the way. It was great. And uh, we didn't know what it was going to be, and we got there. We were stunned, so we arrived in a limo furnished by the promoters and every crowds were behind the red velvet ropes like they're always are you know if there's a big occasion in hollywood everyone wants to get their face on the camera or be part of it and so on and i saw toby and his girlfriend behind the velvet ropes (laughs) i said toby come on uh, come on in (laughs) so i got him under the ropes and into the event, which he loved. And uh, Tom Dubinsky was there. It was black tie. Tom was out there editing something with, uh, I forget if it was with George Romero or not. And then and he was our editor on Night of the Living Dead 1990. 
he edited several of the Romero films and several of mine. And uh, and he was there without any any uh, tuxedo or even a suit jacket, and you had to have that on. So we brought we got Tom <laughs> in the limo with us and took him to the event. And I said, "Well, I'm going to be wearing a tux because <laughs> I have to." And uh, and I said, you can wear my, my uh, one of my suit jackets. So I gave it to him, and he, he's like four inches taller than I am, long and lanky, you know. Mm-hmm. But he made it work, and he got in. And I was introducing him to everybody, including Toby. I mean, I knew so many people there that were in the business, and Tom was like flabbergasted. He said, I never thought I'd get to meet Toby Hooper. Oh, my God, thanks. <laughs> he's quite crazy but what a what a fun event it was and you know Night of the Living Dead and three other films were inducted into the Horror Hall of Fame 1990 <clears throat> so that, anyway awesome. that was that was a great event there in the total surprise we were, they put us up in the Beverly Hills Hilton I think it was I think the Beverly Hills Hotel and we had you know Rooms that probably cost three or four hundred a night at least, with wine and cheese and fruit on the table every day and all that that kind of stuff. Uh, so, and we were uh, we were kind of stunned. And then Tony um, Perkins was was the MC, and uh, he was very derogatory about all the films that were. And I thought, you son of a bitch, if you did, if you didn't like this event and didn't want to be here, and you have to make fun of it then why did you accept the gig in the first place? And so uh, The Exorcist, the other three films were The Exorcist and Psycho, and I want to say Arachnophobia, I think that was it, and Night of the Living Dead. And every time he introduced a film or any of the cast or whatever, well, I never saw that one, he'd go sarcastically. And uh, one more example of the bullshit, Hollywood bullshit. (laughs) It makes no best. sense to have you have an event celebrating those movies and you get an MC that's just going to make fun of them and saying he's never seen them the whole time. You know, it, I can understand maybe one time as a joke, but it, maybe he was joking. I don't know. Obviously, I no, he, he wasn't. He was being totally sar- sarcastic about the whole thing. And it's no different than, you know, at the, at the horror film conventions. And there are uh, people who charge 80 and 100 bucks for a selfie. And they abuse the fans, and uh, and and I I just can't stand that. It, it, stay home with your goddamn money. You know, Shatner is one of them, and uh, he, he's he's terrible with the fans. And uh, I thought, well, what? Why does does he need the money? Do what loses money? What? Why is he doing this if he hates it so much? And I've seen others all, the whole time with a scowl on their face, like I'm too good for this. You know, well then why are you there? So, you know, without the fans, I always say without the fans, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. Or we, we wouldn't have the careers that we do. And uh, they, they deserve respect, you know. Oh, I, I agree with they'll, you. And they'll say they have us. Some people have us on a pedestal, you know. They'll say, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're, you're a living legend. I say, hey, I put my, my pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. So, anyway. What's next? Next question. Well, the thing I want to ask you now, just before we get into the movies, is what led you to go into a movie making? You know, what what got that bug in your system to decide that I want to go into writing and directing and, and things like that? 
Well, I wanted to, to be a writer from, from, you know, graduating from high school. And uh, my friend Rudy Ritchie lived in the, we lived in the same hometown. We were close friends. Both of us wanted to be writers. One of the reasons was that I'm not the type of person that really wants to work for anybody else. And I thought, even, even as I was about to graduate, I had read quite a few mystery novels. And I thought, well, if I can do that, then I won't have to take some kind of mundane job, a job in a steel mill work. That's my dad worked in the steel mill and hated it. And uh, you know, he had a lot of talent that he never really explored for one reason or another, coming through the Depression and uh, the Great Depression and World War II and all that stuff. Those, all those guys, uh, they were the greatest generation. And, uh, and uh, our street was full of them as a street with duplexes built by U.S. Steel to house workers, and um, that's where we live. But everybody on the street, but they were they had pride, and and, and they were uh, they were appreciative and proud that they had come so far as to have a paying job and you know be doing things productive and able to send their kids to college if the kids wanted to go on on a single income. And you know, a lot of families didn't have cars, and the ones that did usually had one family car. Mm-hmm. And there were so few cars that we could play touch football on the street. We we could find a, a room between one telephone pole and the next, which was our goalposts, and uh, and and uh, and there wouldn't be any any parked cars. And you know, the street was wide open to play touch football. And that's we did that a lot. So anyway, getting back to the thing. So so I started trying to write a mystery mystery stories or maybe a mystery novel. I, I didn't have the skills at that time, and uh, I I never I didn't finish anything. Then I went to West Virginia University, and um, Rudy Ritchie, who I mentioned, went to uh, Carnegie. Tech, which is now Carnegie Mellon, and he called me up and he said, he said, uh, you got to meet this great guy that I just met uh, when you come home for Christmas vacation. So his name's George Romero, and he's from New York, and, and uh, he said that we were together in line wearing our freshman beanies in uh, in in. in in uh, class, when we're trying, supposed to be drawing a nude model, live model, George is drawing scenes from Ben Hur in a scratch pad. And he's going to paint that scenes from Ben Hur on my bedroom walls, and my mother's going to let him do it. <laughs> so I come home for uh, Christmas, and Rudy had a 1955 Plymouth convertible. That, that car was already several, quite a few years old. And we drove to George's apartment, and the, Oakland section of Pittsburgh, where all the you know the universities are, and uh, Rudy honked the horn, and George came down to the sidewalk wearing a, a big sombrero and two bandoliers of ammunition, two pistolas, and a big drooping black mustache. And we made no comment. We were too cool to even comment on it, you know. Mm-hmm. George jumped in the car, and we took off to get some ice cream, and the girl slammed the window shut and wouldn't wait on us, and we just laughed. So uh, Rudy said, you should have seen George last week. He was covered head to toe in tinfoil. <laughs> so a lot of times when he saw a movie he liked, he, he would dress up. Well, there was a science fiction movie. I forget which one where the, there was a metallic kind of alien, you know. So that was the tinfoil. And the reason for the Mexican get-up was uh, he, one of his favorite films was um, Eva Zapata with Marlon Brando, I think Anthony Quinn. A just fa- a fabulous film uh, written by John Steinbeck, 
in, in starring and Marlon Brando played Zapata. Zapata was uh, the other Mexican revolutionary along with Pancho Villa. So in the, anyway, so he was dressed like Brando in Viva Zapata. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, George was nuts about making movies, and Rudy and I had messed around with 8mm a little bit staging. There were a lot of teenage juvenile delinquent movies around that time that played the drive-ins and so on, and Blackboard Jungle, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and we never finished anything, and you know we never we did it was amateurish all the way. And uh, but we did we weren't had an interest in making movies, but I thought movies were only made in Hollywood at, at that time. That's what I thought. But George convinced us along the way that we could we could make a movie. You know, it, it's, a, it's quite a long story. How I've I've covered this so many times in interviews and my complete Night of the Living Dead film book and my autobiography and so on. So uh, anyway, that was the start of it, and we worked our asses off with the goal of being feature filmmakers, making TV commercials and industrial films and sleeping on the floor and you know half starving and all that. stuff stuff yep. until we build up all of our equipment and our studio and so on. <clears throat> now, with Night of the Living Dead, um, obviously that was a movie that changed filmmaking dramatically, in the, especially in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. What was it like uh, working with, I've always loved Ben, Dwayne Jones. What was it like working with Dwayne Jones? Because, I mean, you, I don't know how you guys well, did it, it was... but you got the perfect person to be that role. Yeah. We... Dwayne and I became good friends during that. He he was teaching at Columbia University in New York, and, and his uh, uh, George's girlfriend Betty at that time recommended he was coming home for Easter, and she recommended we should let Dwayne audition. And we unanimously thought he was the best actor for the part. And so, but Dwayne, his whole family was very highly educated and intellectual. His sister was at one. She was actually, she was a Harvard Law School graduate and the city solicitor of Atlanta during the period when they had the bombing at the Olympics, mm-hmm. just to set the time frame. And, uh, and, and Dwayne, between takes or whenever there was downtime, he, he would be reading, uh, constantly reading, you know. And then I guess he was kind of suspicious about our motives and had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and, and uh you know, back in this was in the days of Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and everything else that was going on in uh, in, in terms of racial strife, and so he didn't know if we were out to exploit him or what, you know, or whatever that was worth. And he had to gear up and do his big long speech that he does while tearing the table apart, and uh, and he. And he went, made it through that speech and broke down in tears and, and, and came and hugged each of us. And, and that, I think, was kind of, it was a catharsis for him when he finally could feel how deeply we were rooting for him to succeed in the part. And uh, after, so ever after that, he and, I be, he and I were good friends. And when he would come into Pittsburgh, he'd call me and we'd go to whatever party was happening or whatever was going on in that in that way and of course he died young and uh, didn't do too much in the way of films after that after night of the living dead <clears throat> yeah i was just i was just amazed with movies especially as you said the late 60s knowing what was going on back then and for him to be the lead and be so dramatic and so 
Um, everybody cared so much about him and the way he was able to bring that emotion in. It was, it was excellent. I mean, it was, it was like a diamond in the rough and you guys were able to utilize him and he was able to bring everything. Yeah, he wasn't so rough. (laughs) You know, he was really highly polished, highly polished individual, intellectual and smart and so on. The script, uh, as it was originally written, was a, you know, pretty rough truck driver and and not an educated person the way he was portrayed and the first thing that Dwayne wanted to do is to and he talked to George about well can I do a little bit of rewriting so to speak that you know make these things more the dialogue more the way I would say things and uh, and so he was he did that you know which was fine it makes sense Mm -hmm. so uh, what I was meaning by diamond in the rough was like as an actor you know, just being able to find that person. Yeah, I don't know what he did be, before that. I mean, he 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 had some training. I I just don't know much about his history before Night of the Living Dead. But he was teaching at Columbia. I don't even know what he was teaching. We never got into it. So, um, and I would only see him, uh, you know, at special like if he came into Pittsburgh to see his family or or. Uh, uh, things like uh, when Night of the Living Dead premiered, uh, we he and Russ and I went uh, went to uh, we were wined and dined by the distributor. By that time, they knew the picture was a hit, and they uh, and we didn't know how much how badly they were going to rip us off. So we went to the New York premiere, and Dwayne and Russ and I, and then they took us to uh, Sardis, I think, with um, and Diane. Chilento was had lunch with us and a couple of the Walter Reed executives, and this was all designed to, to snow us. You know, mm-hmm. we were we were not uh, so so callow and inexperienced. I mean, we had done a lot of films by then before um, and worked with a lot of people. The first thing I, I ever worked on, we were filming uh, Jimmy Stewart and Anne Margaret at a theater. Uh, they were in, they were in town promoting uh, their movies. And we worked with um, Miss America, Marilyn Vanderbilt, um, on TV on commercials for for uh, Bell Telephone Company. So we we had already worked with a lot of celebrities anyway. And besides, we weren't the type of people who'd be overly impressed by anybody's celebrity credentials. We were all down down to earth. You know, what you see is what you get. So that was that was that. Now, there's only one other act I want to ask you about with Night of the Living Dead. And I think it, I look at it as opposite extremes going from Ben to Judith O'Day, mm-hmm. Barbara. And for my, the way I look at it is she was not as good as an actor as Dwayne John, Dwayne Jones was. And I heard some people, they'll say, oh, because she was in shock. She was playing the shock up and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you were there on the production, how, how good was she at, in, in the movie? Like was, was dialogue well, changed? She- for her she put a, she put a lot of energy into the part that's for sure and that helped sell it you know you 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 when she was running from those ghouls in the beginning and all that stuff you you felt her fear and you know the and her her, her desperation to get away from them and find some way to survive but we uh, you know I, I wrote most of the script not george and the idea of dead people after you and flesh was my idea not his and most of the key ideas were mine. And what, when George uh, and I were talking about casting, and Russ was probably in on that. So 
we had a whole kind of stable of people that were good uh, faces and good personalities for TV spots, whether they were beer commercials or whatever they were. And so we, but at that time, most of the actors and, uh, well, a lot of the actors in Pittsburgh had training at the Pittsburgh Playhouse or Carnegie Tech or wherever, and they were, uh, but they were avocational actors, you know, that who who could afford to uh, take a couple weeks off to be in a, in a full-length movie? Most of them could get away for two or three days to do a commercial, and, uh, but they had, day, they had regular jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. So we went through, we, know, we knew we wanted Carl and Marilyn in the movie because we had worked with them and they were good and they had their own studio and they were in the biz, so to speak. So they, that was an easy casting job as long as they agreed to be part of it, which they readily did. And then we, uh, George said, oh, Russ, Russ was, was a good actor and had trained and been on stage at the Pittsburgh Playhouse, which was not, not a small thing. It was it, it was a noted uh, playhouse that had produced people like you know Frank Gorshin and Charles Grodin and Shirley Jones and on and on. I can never remember them all. So, uh, uh, but then uh, the, the lead girl had to had to be on had to have be two have two weeks, and we couldn't. Well, who in the hell could we get that we could act and look good and play that part? And 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 we couldn't readily think of anyone. And uh, so when I was rewriting George's part of the script, and then writing, I wrote the second half myself. And I, so I kind of underwrote the part. I said, well. If we can get her through the first 20 minutes and if she, Dwayne punches her out and she goes limp or even catatonic, then, then she won't have to act as much, <laughs> you, know, you know? So I often say on stage that when I'm talking to fans that I underwrote the part and probably didn't have to because she was a good actor and could have done more. So, uh, I, I mean, but Dwayne was the best. There's no question. Uh, Dwayne was the best and most naturalistic actor in the movie. And uh, at one point, Carl Hardman asked George, am I, am I playing it too big, George? And George said, no, you're, you're fine. I wasn't the director, uh, but I was there, you know, doing my thing. And I'm... I, I actually disagree with that. I thought he was way too big. And uh, in some places, it almost verges on cartoon-like, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it worked. It all came together and worked. The, the script and the concept and everything else and the hard work that we all put into it, it made it come together and work. And we were solidly behind George as director. And George did a hell of a job, cameraman and director, and it editor so you know it's one of the few projects where there was very little bickering and no backstabbing and all that kind of crap that you usually run into i asked george i said when you when you're directing uh how many how often do the people on the crew and the staff believe that they can do it better than you he said every time (laughs) (laughs) and that's that's pretty much the way it is (laughs) And mostly they can't. I mean, there are even b- people that are big names. I could tell you stories. I mean, you know, they 
shoot 25 or 30 to one and then they dump it on an editor. And no wonder there's, there's an Academy Award for editors because they rescue these people that really, in spite of their fame and reputation, don't really know how, how to stage and block action and, and so on. And they make some pretty dumb decisions sometimes. You know, There's one guy that I interviewed for one of my books, and he's a big name, and we're friends, actually. But he's doing this comedy, and uh, I had to look at it because I was going to interview him. And kind of misses the point of comedy, you know? Yeah. George and Russ and I and Rudy and, you know, our circle of friends, we went to the art houses a lot because Hollywood was doing a bunch of fluff with Brock Hudson and, and uh, uh, oh, shit. Oh, um, Doris Day? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I lost that one for a minute. But. It was pretty much just fluff, and to see anything good, you had to go see the foreign films by Antonioni and Fellini and so on, and uh, the great British comedies, the Carry On Gang Comet series, and, and things like The Captain's Table, and Big Deal on the Donna Street was hilarious. I think Marcello Mastroianni was in that one, but this gang is trying to drill their way into a bank. And they keep having to get bigger and bigger drills because the walls are, are, are thicker than they know. And they end up with this goddamn drill that's about 10 feet long and three <laughs> feet. And they're all trying to get this. Well, they never, they never let on that there's anything funny about what they're doing. You know, the, the audience gets the joke and laughs like hell. The people in the movie take themselves utterly seriously like the coyote that goes after the roadrunner. That coyote never thinks he's a fool. He's deadly serious. Mm-hmm. About, you know, so it, if you, but some people make, uh, it's, since it's a comedy, the comedy they have the actors act funny, you know, putting on a mob-like uh and overdoing it and all that kind of stuff. So I'm always a bit stunned when, when, when doing it. By the way, Night of the Living Dead was shot on a 6 to 1 ratio, not 25 or 30 to 1, like Scorsese shoots or Woody Allen. I mean, well, I love Scorsese, Scorsese stuff and Woody Allen stuff. So hilarious, but I never see his movies anymore because he's a fucking child molester. <laughs> That's where he is. Yeah. You know? So uh, the, uh, anyway... Now, I was going to talk to you about some of the movies you directed. I was going to talk about a couple of the older ones and a couple of things that are coming out more recently, at least one that I know you co-directed with. But I believe this is going by AMDB, so who knows how accurate these things are. <laughs> but who knows what? The I, IMDB, you know, sometimes they're they're very accurate and sometimes they're a little off. So I, I, yeah, I I never bothered correcting. They for years they've had they they say you know, I was in some kind of Frankenstein movie. I never was in it. I don't know anything about it, but I don't correct it. But anyway, I mean, I, I I've heard it's almost impossible to get things corrected. But but anyway, so what what's your question? Well, the, the first thing I think they have you listed as directing that I'm curious about is the booby hatch or the liberation of cherry, um, yeah. Janikowski. Mm-hmm. And that was back in 1976. And, uh, I was, just- yeah, I came, well, I came into the office one day and I, you know, it's a satire on the sex revolution of the seventies. And I came in the office and I said, you know, and bear in mind that we made a lot of corporate sales films and product films and all that. So I said, I said, you know, 
if there are companies that make these uh, sexual aids like dildos and vibrators and more sophisticated stuff, then there must be product testers. And I'd like to make a movie about product testers and how their lives are all screwed up and they can't figure out why. And Rudy fell off his chair onto the floor laughing. And that was the start of that movie. And we made it on $20,000. <laughs> we didn't have any money, even, even then. So, so and, and Rudy uh, wa- wanted to direct it, but it turned out he was one of these people that didn't know as much as he thought he knew. He didn't know how to block action or stage things so they could be edited and all that stuff. So I ended up fixing a lot of what he directed and then and directing a whole lot of it myself and we argued all the way through the project he did a good job with the acting that was really his forte mm-hmm. um what else do you want to know well i was just curious because that seemed like to get your start into the directing chair in the films you know going by your credit list and that you know because everybody has to start well somewhere. probably what about me my start was I, I had you know eventually i was directing tv spots and and sales films and so on and mm-hmm. um, in the beginning george i asked george uh when i joined the company because he said he i said well are there books or schools or classes or anything? Because I don't, there's probably a hundred people in town that know more about the movie making process than I do. And he said, well, there are, but they're all dunces or straight up and down people. I need somebody creative. I said, well, I'll do it, but if I can't hack it, you won't have to fire me. I'll resign. Well, then things went on. And George wasn't a very good teacher. I wasn't the type of person to just look at movies and figure out how they went together and why they were shot that way. And then uh, after working on lots and lots of films, I found a book in the Pitt Bookstore, University of Pittsburgh Bookstore, called The Five C's of Cinematography. Well, this book did spell everything out, you know, exactly why you needed cutaways and the function of close-ups and medium shots and masters and all the, all the logic to it. So I was actually the first one of our group that had really learned uh, screen direction. You know, there there's bad screen direction in Night of the Living Dead. There's lots several places where the camera crosses the axis and you know in particular there are shots of Ross playing Johnny and uh, it'll cut from a from the wider shot or a close-up of Judy back to Ross and he's facing the wrong way in the frame because mm-hmm. because the camera was on the wrong side of it and even up through uh, George's film Martin Martin is full of bad screen direction by that time I knew more about that than George did you know and uh, so, and it was a joke. And I, so, uh, let's see, where was I leading to? So anyway, by the time I I, I direct, I, I had to direct a lot of Chair Jankowski films. I knew all that stuff, and Rustin and Rudy didn't. So I had to make what Rudy directed play, and a lot of times I had to reshoot things or re-edit and fix the mistakes. And the stuff I directed that was blocked correctly and it had the right pace you know mm-hmm. I mean, I, that kind of the sense of pace and, and where shots need to cut and where they need to come in and all that stuff is not automatic and there i seem to have a you know second or third sense about it i mean i can i can do 
got stuff and there can be three or four people sitting there and they'll try to figure out where where do we where do we put in this sound effect where's where's the best place for it if it's something off frame, off camera or or where a thing needs to cut and they'll all venture their opinion and i'll let them do it and then i'll say here's where it goes and when it's done my way it immediately, immediately see that all their suggestions were wrong you know because where i put it works perfectly so i you know, I don't have a great sense of rhythm when it comes to dancing or whatever, but apparently it doesn't compute. You know, the sense of pace and rhythm on screen it is different. It's something different. It has nothing to do with musical rhythm or, or dancing or any of that. It's a special thing. So and a whole lot of people don't have it. I, I think most people don't have it. Oh, I agree. They think. They think they do, but they don't. Oh, I agree with you. I'm, I'm very big when I watch movies where I, I pay particular attention, whether it's just me or, or people like yourself, the ebb and the flow of the movie. And if it's paced correctly, you know, for, for as me as the viewer, I can enjoy the, the ride. So it could be a two-hour and a half movie. If it's paced well and everything's moving, I'm perfectly fine. Where it can be a half-hour movie, yeah. if it's paced poorly, you feel like you're in there for an eternity. Well, Get Shorty is a really good movie, and what's his name? Who directed it? It was a Zemeckis. I don't know. But he was on TV talking about how he had to scrap a scene in that, in that, and it was a very good scene, and it belonged in the movie, but he scrapped it because he couldn't figure out where he could, where it would fit in without without disrupting the flow of the movie. Well, I knew immediately where in the hell it was needed to fit in. He just needed to, to, to rearrange a couple of, sections of the dialogue and it would have worked well and it would have kept the dialogue that he wanted to keep it was another to me it was another it was just another example of somebody being paid big money and shit i i, I saw the meet immediately and he didn't and it's his movie so that ha- that, that that happens over and over again <clears throat> Oh, I, I agree. It, you know, it was, some people just don't have rhythm and balance, as, or rhythm, and, like you were saying, with music. Some directors have that trouble, and the editor is able to provide that rhythm for them if there's enough uh, footage for them to be able to, to pull it off. Yeah, that's why they shoot every damn thing, you know. It's wasteful. And, uh, I mean, I have to know, if I'm shooting a lot of my movies, four to one, you know, and, and you have to have a safety take, so you're really only shooting, like, two or three to one and i have to know in advance where the master goes and the mediums and the close-ups and how they're going to fit together and if i'm wrong that i blow the scene you know mm-hmm. so it's then a lot of times i say well <laughs> you get make a low budget movie and you don't have all the assets and millions of dollars that they have and then they'll put down something i do I said, well, how about uh, you give me the $10 million they have, and I'll give you, them, the $100,000 that I have, and let's see who makes a better movie them, (laughs) you know? Yep. And sometimes I think the the bigger productions, because they have so much money to spend, they don't realize how... um, to make it work with less money. And that, of course, means you have to be editing in your mind before you even shoot, which is, I think, what you're mm-hmm. we're talking about and being ready to pull off those fel- those shots and not doing unnecessary things because you just don't have the budget. You can't keep, especially yeah. back in the days when everything was filmed. Now it's a little different with digital where you 
it doesn't cost as much to do a few it's extra a lot shots. different with digital. <laughs> you can shoot a lot more, and you don't lose anything. You don't physically cut the film. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, like okay, midnight was we did. I did that film on seventy thousand dollars, thirty-five millimeter, with a lot of money going to Lawrence Tierney and the New York mix at Magno Sound, and all the way down to thirty-five print on seventy thousand dollars, and. IIP, Independent International, was only 73 or 400 foot rolls of film at a time, and I'd be up all night driving all over Pittsburgh trying to borrow film. And then the footage they were sending me was spooled out. You know, it's spooled down, Nils. Isn't that where Somebody, they, 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 they have footage left over from film left over from another thing and they re. Well, yeah, it can be stuff that's recanned or mostly spooled down is like the lab uses 2,000 foot rolls you know, uh, uh, to, you know, for laboratory purposes. But so somebody goes into a dark room and spools out down, spools out down into 400 foot. And if there's a light leak, then, the, then there's light flashes on the film. When you get it back, you shoot with it. Then, well, I lost a lot of key stuff because there was flashes. And I had, uh, there was a scene where the, the young girl hits uh, tyranny over the head with a radio and knocks him out. And my, my, my best hit, I had good hits with the radio that were believable, but they were they were light flashed. So I had to go with, you know, the best one of what I had left. Mm-hmm. And I, so I had him, he's drunk already, so I had him fall down when he's hit with the radio and immediately start snoring to convey the idea that he was almost ready to pass out anyway. You know, and it worked. Nobody complained about it. But it's that kind of things, resourceful kind of things you have to do when you don't have money. And that, that at the end of Michael John as a zombie, Rob Lucas, we, he co-directed because I, I was on camera a whole lot. The end of it, he said, "You're an amazing problem solver." <laughs> well, I am. I'll make I'll make a scene work, no matter what I have to do. And I was constantly rewriting, and you know, the more stuff we lost, and the more actors we lost, and the more the weather fucked us up, and the schedule and everything else, the I I would keep rewriting. And I said the same thing that I said when Paul McCall and I were doing Midnight. I said, we're just going to cut the best film we can with what we have. Mm-hmm. And if it turns out to be 72 minutes long, then we're going to, you know, shoot some new stuff or whatever we have to do. And we did the same thing with uh, Michael John as a zombie. And I went to LA and shot 10, 10 minutes of stuff. But you can't just shoot crap yet. It has to be integral to the concept yep you know that's really the trick of it the flexibility of it the intelligence of it it has to work <clears throat> can't just be tacked on <clears throat> oh i agree with or you what? because sometimes you'll see older films where they'll do um stock footage or, or, or to have a car riding around for five minutes just to add padding to the length. And it's just, you're sitting there and you're just, this is so boring. And it's so nice when people are able to put, ex- they don't need an extra five minutes where they're able to put stuff in it that is um, relevant to the movie. Yeah, right. Now, you also well, were uh, special effects with Midnight. You did um, some of the special effects, if I remember reading correctly. Well, Salini did, he, he was in Night Riders, and he, he brought this band up that he had used in the Friday the 13th because I was going to have the two bodies hung up to the rafters and knives thrown into them. And he said, well, I have this machete, and it's already notched, and why don't you have one of the guys decapitated? I said, okay. And uh, it was going to be 
take less time than doing it the other way, you know, less shooting time and a lot easier. So that's that's what I did. But he, he went away to work on Night Riders and uh, then I did all the blood effects. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think he was there whenever the two young guys get get, get shot because he had that thing where you, it's a monofilament and you yank the, uh, there's a blood pouch in the forehead and you yank that out and the blood flows. So he was there for that. But then the rest of it I did. I did all the effects at the end. And that was, um, Sam said, well, we, we have to, Sam Sherman, president of IIP, he loved the film when we screened it in New York. Mm-hmm. He said, that, well, he said, you fellows are to be congratulated. He said, this is not just a good horror film. It's a good, it's a good piece of film in any regard. So, and he wanted an upbeat, he wanted an ending where the girl, he said, we'll never get an R rating if the girl you know the girl's going to die because she's in the cage and she's not going to escape. So I had to write, you know, seven or eight minutes of screen time that the girl survived. And the big guy had shaved his beard off, so we had to make a fake beard. (laughs) (laughs) These are all the things. And people don't realize when you're shooting nighttime, um, filmmakers don't realize you don't have a whole night to shoot. It really only gets totally dark, uh, around 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening and about 4 o'clock in the morning the birds start to chirp and the sun starts to come up the sky starts to light so you really only have 4 or 5 hours to shoot so you have to get ready and you know and then there's a big goddamn thing when you're trying to get your last shots and the sun's coming up if you have uh, money like we had with Heartstopper you can block off uh, you can make darkness you know with baffles and things we didn't have any of that for midnight. So, uh, yeah, because you guys are only had seventy thousand dollars. Like you said, a lot of it was tied up into um, and, an actor and getting and the film processed. Yeah, and everybody got paid except me and Paul and I didn't get paid. Everybody else did. Paul McCullough was my editor, and uh, and uh, so we had percentages of the, of the product, and they didn't. But when we showed up, Tierney started giving me some advice. I said, Larry, I know exactly what I have to do. And if you keep interrupting me with suggestions, we're not going to get done tonight. We only have one, one night to shoot all this. And uh, I said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, I, I just don't want there to be a hole in your movie. I said, there's not going to be a hole. <laughs> yeah. And the scene does play and play and play once it starts. And he, he arrives that, that night. Uh, it does play it just keeps moving and you know it's a pretty good ending uh, so um, i gotta go pretty soon we've been on for an hour all right well i'm going to take us to um you brought it up already my uncle john is a zombie which came out just a uh, few years ago what about it I, I thought it was really good you're you're the lead actor because you were uncle yeah. john you also were the co-director because i believe you directed any of the scenes that you were not in you were directing all the parts that, except for the parts that you were in uh, well, Rob directed some of those too because I'd have to be getting in the makeup or doing producer things. Or Christ, it was run in my old hometown, and I had to be the zombie wrangler. So I'd have to go around to the bars and clubs and everything, trying to get zombies for the next day. And so there was just a lot of things, or I'd be rewriting things depending on you know what what didn't show up or what people were going to lose because they're time they took 
vacation time they took from their jobs was over and you know and the schedule had changed so whatever but rob is really good rob's one of these people that is a director and knows what he's doing so we have a great relationship through the whole thing and um, when i when i wrote i wrote another uh, a script called uh talk Cap a zombie and it was a similar kind of horror comedy and i was going to have me and Russ and George in it, and uh, George read it and says, oh, yeah, I never did like that screen queen kind of stuff. And because there's a ditzy screen queen in the movie that uh, that discovers this this crazy laboratory in the basement of the student union, and and uh, and he said, and you're trying to remake yourself and all that. <laughs> uh, so when when I did wrote the talk episode, what are you talking about? Remake myself? I've I've done all kinds of things through my whole career. You know, I'm not a one trick pony. And God damn it, I'll show you. I will do this movie, and I will play the lead role. You know, because I had never done anything that big. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to. I had enough to do with directing or producing or whatever. And I would do bid parts when I had to. And that was it. But but the, this, you know, I'm the one that makes people laugh when they're on stage. So I played the character. And, and it gets good reviews and great audience reaction. And I wrote three of the songs and I sing two of them. <laughs> As a zombie. And I'm getting good reviews for the singing too. <laughs> I enjoyed so the movie. That, that, that's a kick, you know. That's it's a it's a it's it was a lot of fun to be able to do all that at this stage in my career. Oh, I think so, and I think people have to realize you're always are able to do stuff. And you know, a lot of people will say sometimes, "Oh, why doesn't somebody retire at a certain age?" If you enjoy what you're doing, and I never, then why why I, why stop? Retiring never was any part of my plan. <laughs> I think it's kind of silly. <laughs> you know, if you're in good health, why the hell would you retire? Go do something else, <laughs> you know. I'd probably work on political campaigns if I wasn't doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of people retire and then they die quickly. But I've kept in shape my whole life. I exercised my whole life and still do. And so what the hell, you know. Yeah. First day of shooting on Uncle John was like 18 there was an 18 hour day i didn't go to the toilet i didn't drink anything i didn't eat anything and i never left the, where the, wherever the camera was because if things are going to screw up and if things are going to go wrong and you're working with a whole bunch of strangers because rob brought a lot of people in from la then that's when it's going to fuck up you know mm-hmm. and that's what i don't want to happen and the, the young guys were—they were astounded that I was doing all these things and kept going every day when they were ready to crap out. You know, how the hell does Russo do it? They would say, <laughs> "Oh well, because, okay." Because the, the drive and the love is there. I mean, as long as you got that, it, it'll help get you through. You know, when you start feeling fatigue, because you're just enjoying it, and you know, once you yeah, want, I mean, you can rest when you're done. It's grueling work always, you know. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, again, if I'm on stage and talk to young filmmakers and wannabes, and, you know, you got to stay in shape because uh, it's a grueling process and, and you have to have the energy to, to do it. And, and it helps if you have good genes. These are wranglers. <laughs> <They laugh. laughs> yeah. So... 
that's it. Okay. I was to say for listeners, if you want to see Mr. Russo, he does monster bash regularly because I think it's real close to where you live. And yeah, well, I do about 15 conventions. Now they're all, you know, they, a lot of them started up again during 2021. I'm, I'm at the Steel City Convention in December, and then after that I have to start working on my convention list for 2022. So and, and Steel, City, Steel City is kind of eclectic. They do have a whole slew of uh, mostly TV series stars. And uh, the 10th, 11th, and 12th in the, in the Monroeville, PA, the convention center there, mm-hmm. which is only, you know, 10 minutes from Pittsburgh, downtown Pittsburgh. All right. Uh, thanks. See you later. Thank you, Mr. Russo. And I hope you have a good rest of the, the day and I uh, hope you enjoy the Christmas holidays coming up. Well, same to you. See you, Steve. See you. Thanks. <clears throat> I hope everybody enjoyed that episode with Mr. Russo. Um, as you could tell, it was done before Christmas of last year. I held on to it because I wanted to put it out prior to Monster Bash. So that's why it was a little bit delayed. Also, I want to let everybody know that our next episode is a continuation of the Hammerama series with Alster Hughes and myself. We have episode number four coming out, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde with the wonderful Martine Beswick and Ralph Bates. So I hope everybody enjoys that episode, and here's a little promo for that Hammerama to take us out. I hope everybody has a good time and enjoy themselves. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse our encounters with the stars, a film poster critique, and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.